Imagine the trial of the century in the 1800s, a trial like the O.J. Simpson trial. Imagine a signer of the Declaration of Independence, the man who taught Thomas Jefferson the law, poison, and the public follows every move of the trial about this lurid poisoning. Hi, my name is Melanie Boyer. I'm the manager of digital media and strategy here at Monticello. I'm Carrie Subra. I am the digital learning coordinator. And we're bringing you another episode of End the Course of Human Events. I promise I'll be mature. No, we can't. (laughs) It's impossible. It is. Okay. Here's our colleague, David Thorson, and he's going to be telling us a story today about the infamous murder of George Wythe. On Sunday, May 25th, 1806, three of Richmond's best-known doctors rushed to the home of Judge George Wythe, where three of the four members of his household were deathly ill. Their agonizing pain, nausea, diarrhea, all symptoms consistent with cholera caused, the doctors suspected, by eating tainted strawberries and milk consumed the night before. George Wythe, father of American jurisprudence, signer of the Declaration of Independence, and the beloved mentor to his best-known pupil, Thomas Jefferson. Standing at his bedside, the doctors were stunned by their patient's self-diagnosis. I am murdered. Carrie and I joke that it's our dream to do a, a true crime podcast, but this is almost like the beginning of a Dateline episode where you'd see the person come in and be like, I'm murdered. And um, you want to know what's going to happen next. So we're living our Dateline dream right now. I think. We are living our true crime podcast dream, Melanie. <laughs> it's not a joke. <laughs> It was curious to me when I read a little bit more about cholera that they said that this would be the cause of death. The first outbreak of cholera in the United States was around the 1830s or 1840s. And this happened back in 1806. I could see where they might think that it was something like cholera because more than one person got sick after Mm. consuming this fruit. I will say, so the strawberries might be like a red herring. But of course, with any criminal investigation, right, everything seems like a clue. (laughs) Even even the strawberries. (laughs) The Wythe household consisted of four people. 80-year-old George Wythe, chief judge of the Virginia Chancery Court. 66-year-old Lydia Broadmax, his free black housekeeper of 20 years. 16-year-old Michael Brown, a free black man being given a classical education by Wythe to prove blacks were the intellectual equals of whites. And 17-year-old George Wythe Sweeney, Wythe's grandnephew, and the only member of his household who had not eaten strawberries and milk. In 1806, obviously, many African-American people were still enslaved. So it was a little bit unusual at the time for this kind of household situation. Lydia Broadnax had been enslaved by George with previously. She was given her manumission papers and she remained with George with, but was a paid servant. I think it's interesting that with is providing Brown with an education to prove that blacks were the intellectual equals of whites, which is definitely not a view that would be shared by his prodigy Jefferson. He is doing something kind of revolutionary, showing that 
these racist ideas that our country based slavery in are not real. I think that's noteworthy. George Sweeney was a frequent guest of his granduncle and with, widowed and childless, treated him as a prodigal son. Sweeney was well known in low society in Richmond, deeply indebted as a gambler who raised funds selling books stolen from his granduncle's library, cashing checks forged in George Wythe's name. Wythe had named both George Sweeney and Michael Brown as heirs in his will. Lydia Brodnax recalled coming upon George Sweeney secretly reading the will the night of the 24th of May, and then his strange behavior the following morning. He demanded she make him toast, and then she noticed Sweeney pour himself a cup of coffee, fiddle with the coffee pot, and then toss a packet into the fire before bolting down his toast and leaving while Brodnax took breakfast and coffee to George with. Back in the kitchen, Michael Brown joined Brodnax for a cup of coffee, but within minutes, Brodnax was writhing in pain. Michael Brown had collapsed at the table, and George Wythe stumbled downstairs, vomiting, violently ill. Moving on to the villains. (laughs) Sweeney is such a nefarious character. As his uncle is providing a pretty nice life for him, he's stealing from him. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, George Sweeney as David shared with us, demanded that Lydia Brodnax make him toast because you can't murder on an empty stomach. (laughs) What do you think he's doing when he demands that she make him toast? He's creating a diversion. He's creating a diversion. You know that. So he can mess with the coffee pot. And throw a packet into the fire. Right. That's very suspicious. Yes. George Wythe's neighbor, Richmond Mayor William Duvall, came upon the gruesome scene and called on three doctors. Dr. James McClurg, Dr. William Fushi, and Dr. James McCaw. They dismissed George Wythe's claim he'd been poisoned. They started a 48-hour vigil, the standard of the day in which a cholera patient would either die or recover from the disease. Two days later, Lydia Brodnax began to recover, but George Wythe and Michael Brown remained deathly ill. I think it's so interesting that Wythe announced, I have been murdered, right? Like he's telling people he has been poisoned, and yet they just ignore that and say, all right, we're going to just keep an eye on you because you have cholera. You know, the first 48 hours, as we know from all the crime shows, is the the most important time to be investigating (gasps) the crime, even though they may be the best doctors in Richmond. (laughs) They could have done a little bit better in listening to their patient. Meanwhile, Sweeney cashed a $100 check with his uncle's signature at the Bank of Richmond. The suspicious bank president called for a constable. With Sweeney now suspected of forgery, Wythe's doctors searched the young man's room. They found a glass vial containing a suspicious white powder, probably arsenic. I mean, seriously, who (laughs) forges the check of the man that they just attempted to murder (laughs) while he's dying, forges his signature to get more money? Yeah, and David says he was trying to cash a $100 check, which I looked it up. It's worth about like $1,000 today. 
And then he gets caught because it's a small town. Richmond is a large city today, but then everybody knows everybody and they're aware that George Wythe is dying. And why is he writing checks to his nephew? On June 1st, Michael Brown died. George Wythe, violently ill, grieving the loss of Michael Brown, his protege, treated him almost like an adopted son. He called on his friend Edmund Randolph, Thomas Jefferson's cousin, the former governor of Virginia, former U.S. Attorney General, former Secretary of State, to draft a new will that disinherited George Sweeney in favor of Sweeney's siblings. The following day, when Sweeney was arrested on forgery charges, George Wythe refused Sweeney's request to post bail. Melanie, he has the gall to ask his uncle to pay for his bail. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's a... <laughs> I mean... And the bail was like $1,000, right? <laughs> That's like $10,000 or something ridiculous in today's money. He's trying to take out everyone except himself that is listed in George Wythe's will. Yeah, and it just seems so obvious. This is where in Dateline that you're just like, I mean, you know, the husband did it. Because the will said if Brown died before his full age, Sweeney would receive not only his inheritance, but also Brown's portion. So, I mean, it's a no-brainer. It's totally premeditated. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. After two weeks of agony, George Wythe died June 8th. He was buried on June 11th at St. John's Church in Richmond following the largest funeral in Virginia state history. Businesses in the city shut down that entire day. Thousands of Virginians lined Main Street in Richmond as the funeral procession traveled from the Capitol to the burial site. Newspaper coverage of George Wythe's mysterious death transfixed American readers throughout the summer and fall of 1806. Although no one witnessed Sweeney in the act of poisoning his housemates, the circumstantial evidence against him was overwhelming. Sweeney's friend Taylor Williams reported Sweeney asked him for advice on procuring poison. Williams suggested ratsbane, the arsenic lace poison used to control Richmond's notorious rodent infestation. Mayor Duvall, a friend of Wythe's, told police he found arsenic powder in the judge's storage shed. The doctors found arsenic powder in Sweeney's room, and their hasty autopsies of Wythe and Brown indicated evidence of arsenic poisoning. Virginia law forbade blacks from testifying against whites in legal proceedings. Therefore, Lydia Brodnax could not testify to catching Sweeney reading Wythe's will the evening of May 24th and his strange behavior on the morning of May 25th. Nor was the testimony of two enslaved carpenters who were working at Wythe's home and saw Sweeney grind a chunk of something with an ax into powder. So Carrie and I were looking at this and starting as early as 1705, there was a statute that prohibited all black slave or free from giving evidence of any kind under oath. And also a white person could not testify on information they had heard from a black person 
Right, Carrie? Wasn't there something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is systematic racism to keep the white men in power. And how many people literally got away with murder because of these racist laws. Mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting that we joked about the toast earlier. It was a way to, to distract so he can put the arsenic in the coffee. But also, I think he is bold about the crimes he's going to commit because he would know that Lydia would never be able to testify against him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me that Sweeney may have treated Lydia Bro- Broadnax or Michael Brown as invisible. An enslaved person at Monticello's later interview talks about being kind of an invisible presence. Right. And thinking about it, too, even if Lydia Broadnecks had been able to testify, the the jury, I'm assuming, would be all white men. He shows his entitlement in the crimes he's committing. Like I said earlier, you know, forging checks in a town where everybody knows your uncle and knows you Mm -hmm. and is aware of your reputation of always being in debt from gambling and not making good life choices. He is aware of his power. Maybe he's not consciously thinking it, but he is going to get away with these crimes because of how society was set up then. And And because of his place in society. I mean, it is a class issue as well. Virginia Attorney General Philip Nicholas stepped in as chief prosecutor in what was expected to be a speedy trial that would find Sweeney guilty and sentenced to death. On the eve of the trial, set to begin September 1st, 1806, two men stepped forward to defend Sweeney. One, an ambitious young lawyer, William Wirt. Even though convinced of Sweeney's guilt, he saw the trial as a quick means to make a name for himself. Perhaps more surprisingly, George Wythe's friend and personal attorney, Edmund Randolph, came to Sweeney's defense. Randolph had resigned from Washington's cabinet following a political scandal in the loss of $50,000 in federal money that he was required to pay back instead of going to prison. A victory in the Sweeney case could provide a path to Randolph reestablishing his legal career and settling his debts. So Edmund Randolph, he is Thomas Jefferson's cousin. He's been, as David tells us, governor of Virginia, a secretary of state. What else, Melanie? Attorney general, right? Yep. He had a little scandal back when he was secretary of state. I dug a little bit into this because I wanted to know what his shady deals were. It was involving an intercepted message The British Navy had intercepted this correspondence from a French minister named Joseph Fauché to his superiors. It it talked about how Randolph had exposed some debates in the cabinet to the French and had reflected contempt for the United States. So basically he's, I mean, maybe not spying, but I don't know. He's side texting. He's side texting France. France. And, And then it gets back to Washington and Washington's like, what the heck here? And it led to Randolph resigning his position as Secretary of State in 1795. So he was basically canned. And then somehow this money got lost and he ended up having to pay it back. So I think that's what undergirds him being the defense lawyer in this trial is this real sense of wanting to regain his reputation. Jefferson allegedly said about his cousin, Edmund Randolph, he is the purest chameleon I've ever met. Mm, That's right. Yeah. He really does seem like a 
Better Call Saul kind of guy, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think everybody's in it for themselves, themselves in this. You, you <laughs> just got, said the same thing. <laughs> you've got the Virginia Attorney General who's going to step in because he thinks it's going to, you know, be such an easy win. You've got Randolph that we've talked about wanting to redeem his precious reputation. And then you've got Wirt, who also saw it as a way to gain publicity for himself. I am continually seeing callback to the O.J. Simpson trial in the 90s. He created himself a dream team of defense attorneys. Attorney General Nicholas centered the prosecution's case on the medical testimony of doctors McClurg, Fushi, and McCaw, whose autopsies on Wythe and Brown revealed signs of arsenic poisoning, including ruptured blood vessels and bile in the gastrointestinal tract. Under cross-examination, the doctors quickly found themselves overwhelmed by the defense team. Wirt and Randolph peppered the doctors with questions that revealed the doctors had conducted only cursory autopsies, failed to perform standard chemical tests to detect arsenic. Under oath, McClurg admitted that bile in the stomach might be the result of bowel troubles that he'd routinely treated with for. And bile found in young Michael Brown's stomach was rare, but not unheard of in other diseases not related to arsenic poisoning. McClurg, McCaw, and Fushi each testified arsenic might have killed With and Brown, but it was also possible that the stomach bile was the culprit. The defense also had little difficulty casting doubt on the physical evidence of the arsenic found in Sweeney's room. Wirton Randolph pointed out that half the residents of Richmond had arsenic in their homes for the legitimate purpose of killing rats. It does remind me very much of the trial of O.J. Simpson when David's talking about how the defense really overwhelms them. And I think it would be really interesting if we could see exactly how that went down. He's like yes. patting at his brow with a, with a napkin <laughs> and just being all flustered. I really picture these three doctors as just being almost smug. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence of that, but that's just how I picture it. And then to have the lawyers come in and rip their testimony to shreds. We're already playing uh, out this movie in our heads. <laughs> but that's what a defense team tries to do is to get a jury to see that, oh, maybe it's not the husband. It's not the nephew. It's something mm-hmm. else. So to poke holes in it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. These doctors. They just seem like they're kind of bumbling. Wirt and Randolph, they did their job well. <laughs> well, the dream and you team. know it pains me to say that. That's what you hire him for. After less than an hour's deliberation, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. Sweeney's forgery trial ended the following day. The judge dropped the charges on the grounds that Virginia law applied only to forgery against a person, not against a public institution like a bank. Released from custody, Sweeney disappeared from Richmond and was never heard from again. I read too that because of the public anger against him, his attorneys advised him to leave the state as quickly as possible. And so he just like, he yeeted himself on out of Virginia and was never seen again. (laughs) So I'm really curious what happened to him though. All right, Melanie, though Sweeney was never heard from again, there were some sightings of him. Apparently he went to Tennessee and then would find himself in jail again because he stole a horse. (laughs) Of course he did. (laughs) 
I guess he didn't ride the horse away. <laughs> this guy is just such a buffoon. I, it makes me angry that he got away with murder and forgery. But maybe not with stealing a horse. Good. Maybe he ended up in jail. That was where he belonged. Mm, clearly. The news cycle quickly moved beyond the murder of George Wythe and Michael Brown to a new scandal. The arrest and trial of Jefferson's former vice president, Aaron Burr, on charges of treason. Burr would be acquitted in 1807 as the result of a brilliant defense by his lawyer, Edmund Randolph, against his prosecutor, William Wirt. I mean, just like today, with our 24-hour news cycles, it moves on quickly past this scandal to the arrest and trial of Aaron Burr when he was charged with treason. And while these gentlemen may have done their job well, it speaks to the sleaze. They would have their Better Call Saul billboards. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine if they had TV back then? They'd be coming out of court every day, talking to (laughs) all the reporters. It would be. But it also kind of makes me mad that... (laughs) They got what they wanted, right? They got this attention, and now they're seen as the hot lawyers that people either want you to prosecute or want you to defend them. I just also think it's interesting that Jefferson, while he's not a main character in this story, all of these different trials, he still has a connection to them, like Burr. I mean, his vice president for a brief (laughs) instant. All of this, too, happened during his presidency. He was president. And he's, he's aware, right? I mean, he, he knows what's, what's going on. George Wythe, Jefferson's mentor and friend, remembered his student in his will. Wythe's revised will bequeathed him his treasured collection of books, along with two silver drinking cups that Jefferson had melted down in 1810, creating a set of four stemless wine cups engraved GW to TJ. Three of those cups have survived and are on display at Monticello. As a, as a guide, when um, leading an in-person tour, we do have on display the silver cups. And so often guests think, well, GW is George Washington. And I get to tell them that the GW actually refers to George Wythe, but also that George Wythe was super important in Jefferson's life. Jefferson attends the College of William and Mary and then decides to go on to study law. When he's in Williamsburg, he's living with George Wythe for several years and really thinks that he is an intellectual god. And I don't know, help me, Melanie, I can't think of it. So here's one thing that Jefferson said about with. He was my ancient master, my earliest and best friend, and to him I am indebted for first impressions, which have been the most salutary on the course of my life. Well, Carrie, thank you for being my partner in crime <laughs> on this, this In true crime <laughs> investigation. We solved the case. Even though justice did really not prevail. Solved. That's, that's true. But that happens a lot on Dateline, too. So it's okay. That's true. And thank you but, so much to David Thorson for telling this story in the amazing way that he does. 